Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. I'll read the text, and then we will get into it. Luke 1, 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask now as we take some time to dig into this portion of Scripture, give us eyes to see you, God. Give us eyes to see you. There are so many things to put our eyes on in this world, and we all bring into this place this morning loads of concerns and cares and desires and wants and wishes. And God, what we need this morning is a clear view, not of all of the myriads of things we could look at. What we need is a clear view of who you are. And so I ask God for something supernatural to happen in this place this morning, that you'd give us eyes to see you. We cannot accomplish this in our own strength. I can't accomplish this with my words. You have got to do this, God. And so we ask it. Open our eyes. Help us to see you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we talked about this song of Mary, and we emphasized kind of three things about this song. We said that uh, we noticed the humility of Elizabeth and Mary in their songs, their, that Christianity is always couched in humility, that God uh, raises up the humble, that when you see what God has done for you, you cannot help but be humbled. We stress the humility in Elizabeth and Mary. We stress the the, the unity between magnifying and glorifying God and rejoicing in Him. And how, how you magnify and glorify God is that you rejoice in Him. You, he is your joy. He is what gives you satisfaction. He is what you look forward to. He is all of your treasure. And when you treasure Christ, you magnify Christ. And so in our desire to glorify God, what that really means is that we have a desire to enjoy God. As much as we can, that's how we glorify Him, by enjoying Him. The humility, the magnifying, glorifying God is hand in hand with our enjoying in Him. And then the third thing we stressed was Mary's ability to sing because she enjoyed God and rejoiced in what God had done for her. She was able to sing even though her life was being turned upside down. 
what was happening to her is she as a virgin betrothed woman is now going to bear the Son of God. And people are going to forever wonder whose child this is. They are going to mock her. They're going, you know, they still, Jesus, as in a young man, they, they mocked him saying, who is your father? And they, that, that ridicule was going to follow Mary. And in fact, she's going to see her son uh, mocked and crucified and hung on a cross. Her life is not the suburban uh, Nazarite kind of, you know, this wonderful, quaint little country life anymore. God has turned it upside down. But because of what God has done for her, seeing God clearly, she's able to sing in the midst of being turned upside down. This week, I want to take a closer look at what it is that Mary actually saw about God that enabled her to sing. And the reason is simply this. My fear from last week, and I, and, and I don't want us to, to take away these sorts of things, I don't want you to walk away simply marveling at Mary's ability to sing a song in the midst of her shaking and be crushed by this expectation, this kind of demand, you've got to sing when life goes upside down for you. If, if we just set up another rule, what that's called is bad law. It's not found in the Bible. That's me just burdening you up with other expectations. You've got to, when life goes like this, you better, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. And that is never my desire when I stand up here, is to give you more laws. Because all that happens when we confront with ourselves with the law is we end up crushed. We end up crushed. We walk out and we think, all right, I've got my to-do list. I'm going to sing a song. I'm going to go out and no matter what God brings to me, I'm going to sing a song. And then all of a sudden, life goes like this and you find yourself really struggling to sing a song and you're crushed. Or else you convince yourself in some sort of crazy delusion to sing a, you know, some sort of a crazy song in the midst of things going upside down. And, and, it, and you end up being, becoming proud because, well, I did what, I, I fulfilled the law. I have done good. I don't want you to be crushed by setting up some sort of law. This isn't about us going out in the strength of our own will, convincing ourselves to sing a song no matter what this world throws at us under the provincial hand, providential hand of God. That will just lead to your crushing. What I want, rather, instead of just putting up law for you, what I, we must do is work to see the God that Mary saw. The reason why Mary sings is not because she has a rule. I've got a rule. And when things go bad, I'm going to sing no matter what. And by the strength of her own will, she's going to sing. That is not what makes Mary sing. And setting up rules for yourself are not what's empowering. It's not what empowered Mary, and it's what eventually will crush you with unnecessary law. The reason Mary sang wasn't because of her own strength, but because of the strength, she saw the strength of her God. What enabled Mary to sing was not her own strength, but was the sight that saw the strength of her God. She did not look into herself to be able to generate this ability she looked outside of herself to the one who ultimately is strong. And then because of a clear sight of that, the singing came. Mary doesn't sing because she is great. She sings because she sees that her God is great. If we depend upon our own greatness to will ourselves to sing in the moments of trial, we will find ourselves crushed. We must look and see the God that Mary saw 
and impelled her to sing. So we're taking time to go through, and, and the sermon title here is The God That Mary Sang About, The God of Mary's Song. What you need, can I just, I'm trying to be honest here, what you need is not more rules. What you need for your Christianity or to become a Christian is a, a new to-do list. And so I've got the 500 things, I've got the many, I've got the 10 commandments, the big 10, and now Darren's going to add another rule of you better sing when life goes upside down. You don't need more rules. You don't need more rules. What we need is to glimpse who God really is. What we need is a vision of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Robert Murray McShane is a Scottish, I think Scottish, uh, anyway, a preacher from years gone back. And he says this, he was writing a letter to someone, someone, and he says that for every look at self, take ten looks to Christ. For every one look at self, take ten looks to Christ. Our only hope in this life is not by becoming proficient in-lookers. Okay? Now, this is what this is kind of the hip thing in our culture today is become really good at understanding yourself, right? And so we spend tons of energy trying to understand myself and dig deeper into myself and why am I the way that I am. And, and those things, I'm not, I don't mean to mock them outright. Those things are, self-introspection is a good thing to understand why we are the way that we are. I think it needs to be combined with a reading of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and understanding the fall as well. But we become proficient inlookers. Our hope, though, in this life is not by becoming proficient inlookers by our, at our own strength, our own intelligence, our own self-sufficiency, but excellent outlookers at the reality of who our God is and what He has done for us in Christ. Your hope in this life is not by becoming proficient inlooker, a very skilled at understanding, oh, this is where I'm, this, I've got the character to do this. I'm going to build up my integrity so I can do, I can do, I can do. Not becoming proficient inlookers, but proficient outlookers at who God is, what he has done for us in Christ, the good news of the gospel, the grace of God. And when we see that, when we're caught up in this vision like Mary was of who her God was, it takes the upside down life and, it's, and it, it straightens it out somehow. It, it gives you the grace to move on and to sing, not by a force of will, but truly enjoy at knowing who this God is. So that's what we are going for. This requires that the God we see is the God who really is. Vague, simplistic truisms about God at the end of the day, will not hold up under the weight of the severity of life. You know, you, people are well-meaning, and it's, you know, but you've all been there, that you've had things go wrong, and, and someone comes in and they give you a, a truism about you know, why they think suffering happens or why God does what he does, and it's not based in the Bible at all. Most likely it doesn't have any truth to it, but they just kind of spit it out there as though it's some sort of comfort, and I understand the motive behind these things, but... At the end of the day, truisms and light thoughts about God do not hold up under the weight of the severity of life. We had one of our uh, doctors, a very nice young lady, when Darla was in the hospital, and, and you know it was rough there for a while. Those of you who have gone through major surgery and are laid up and in pain and all those things you're going through, and, and she came in, and, 
and we were upset and very well-meaning. She says, you know, God never gives us more than we can handle. And I had to swallow my uh, retort because I wanted to call her on it, but I was going to be, she was just trying to be nice, and so I didn't call her on it, but I'll call her on it here. She's not listening. She won't know. (laughs) God absolutely gives you more than you can handle. That's what life is. God, God, life is more than you can handle. And what needs to happen in those moments is not some sort of self, oh, I, I can do this. God, God has empowered me to handle what life has thrown at me. No, he hasn't. What he has done is he's given you himself. What he has done is he, he's, he's given you Christ so that when life comes up and it, you cannot handle it, you put you, if, if God is moving in your life at all, you throw yourself upon him, the one who can handle it. Truism is what we need at the end of the day. I only bring that up because at the end of the day, we don't need lighthearted truisms. They don't, come, they don't hold up under the severity of life. We need to see God for who he really is. Oh, i got to get moving. Um, so just three things here. in Mary, The God of Mary's song. We see three things about God. And please be praying with me. I, I want to see these things. I want you to see these things. Life has all sorts of turns in it. And the way Mary is able to sing is a clear view of who her God is. Three things we see here. We see the grace of our God in Mary's song. We see the strength of our God. And we see the promise keeping of our God. The grace of our God, the strength of our God, and the promise keeping of our God. When we talk about verses 48 through 50, this is what Mary sings or 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. From behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The humility that comes from Mary and Elizabeth is not some sort of just decision, I'm going to humble myself before God, though that is a fine decision to make. But it is a grasping of the one-sided favor and grace of God coming towards them. A clear and accurate view of the grace of God in and of itself produces humility. So what is grace? We talk about we see the grace. Mary sees the grace of God. What is grace? Well, one of my favorite definitions comes from Oswald Chambers, where he says grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is simply unmerited favor. Unmerited in that we do not deserve it and have done nothing to earn it. Our, remember, our fighter verse from last week, Titus 3, 5, God, he saved us, not according to works done by us, in righteousness, not according to works done by us in righteousness. Why would God look upon anyone with favor? When we talk about Genesis 3, we talk about the fall of mankind. We have rebelled against God. He has given us holy, righteous, good for us and glorifying to him commands, and we have broken them. We have said, we do not want you, God. We want ourselves. We have not wanted your way. We have not wanted to magnify you. We've wanted to magnify ourselves. Anyone that was in kids' church or in Sunday school this morning, the Tower of Babel is all about. They decided they didn't want to glorify God anymore. They wanted to glorify themselves. And we've been doing this ever since, rebelling against God. Why would anyone give favor to those who really hate him and rebel against him? 
God gives his favor and he is gracious because he has decided to be. Notice this refrain. I mean, it's, it's seven times in six sentences here that Mary sings, he has, he has, he has, he has. If we go on in verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He has sent away empty. He has helped. Do you, do you get the gravity of God's movement on behalf of those who do not earn it but are desperate for his favor? This is the position we all find ourselves in our natural state. Desperate, desperate, unable to save ourselves, unable to do anything that brings us closer to God, unable to do enough righteous works that would somehow tip the scales in our favors. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We are all under the weight of God's condemnation. And the only reason why God would look upon us in favor is because he has decided to do it. He is a gracious God. Our rejoicing in the greatness of the grace of God toward us flows from two realities. The first one is the state that we find ourselves in apart from God, just in our condemnation. And the second is the favor that comes to us despite our condition. Grace takes away, it blows away, the I will do or the I have dones and marvels at the he has of God's grace. Grace wipes out all proud strutting. It is not I have done. It is not I have chosen. It is God has done. His grace has come to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see yourself as a contributor to your salvation? Do you sit here this morning and, and think, you know, I, that's, by the way, that's, that's Catholicism is this idea that God gives us some grace and then we kind of, we, we build it up and we help ourselves out and we combine these things, we contribute to our salvation. It's not the picture of the gospel at all. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. I didn't make, come up with that. That's a quote from somebody. I don't know who, but... So don't, don't give it to me. I, I would take it. But the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us clearly that as by grace we are saved, not of works. For it is by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is by grace through faith. This by itself is as a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. The good news in saving grace is the same grace that elects us before the foundation of the world, is the same grace that effectually calls us, it's the grace that saves us, sanctifies us, and it is the grace that will secure us and bring us all the way home. The good news about grace is that if you didn't contribute to this, if it's, if it's God's move on your behalf, we can rest knowing that I'll mess this up many times along the way but God's grace has captured me and God's grace will keep me. Mary is enthralled with this view of God who moves for her. You don't deserve to have Jesus come to earth, live the righteous life you should have lived and die the death for the forgiveness of your sins. We don't deserve that. Grace has done that for you. Grace 
has done that for you. Grace, if you're a believer in Christ, has given you the eyes to see this and rejoice in it. And if grace has done this for you, grace will keep you. We need to see the grace of our God and His favor towards us. Romans 5.8 In this is love, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is grace. The second thing we see, and we've got to move on, is the strength of God. To see the grace of God without any strength of God is pointless. If God's just a real gracious God, but he has no strong arm to make his grace happen, what's the point of that? You can be the most gracious, you know, kind person stuck up in a room somewhere that doesn't really, can't make anything happen. You're a very gracious soul, but really it doesn't benefit anybody who's not there with you, right? I mean, if God doesn't have strength, what good is his grace? But what we see in this song and what Mary sees is a God of grace and a God of strength. God does what he wants to do. If God was benevolent, gracious, but could not force his goodness to happen, what good is his graciousness? But God is not weak. God is very strong. God does as he wills. Mary sings that God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. He brings the mighty down from their thrones like Nebuchadnezzar. You can read in Daniel chapter 4, this great king who's got it all, this wise ruling man, and God says God humbles him to the point that he's out eating grass and growing hair like bird feathers. It's a crazy story. Don't believe me. It's in there. Daniel 4. Read it. God is strong. He, he humbles the exalted, and he exalts the humble. Like Moses, born as a Hebrew slave, should have been thrown into the Nile, and what does God do? His mother puts him in a, a, a pitch basket, and he's rescued by Pharaoh's daughter and becomes the prince of Egypt, basically, right? God takes the humble and he exalts him. Joseph, who is sold into slavery, the coat of many colors, that Joseph, sold into slavery, becomes second to Pharaoh. Or like even Mary, a humble virgin in a little town called Nazareth, who is remembered to this very day because of God's favor upon her, God taking the humble and exalting them. God is not stressed out. There is nothing coming down the line that he cannot handle and do with it exactly what he wills for for the ultimate good of his people and for his own glory. It's like a, when we think about God's strength, it's like a wrestling match. But sometimes we, we have this dualism in our mind of God's out there fighting these equal opposite forces. And boy, they're really duking it out and trying to get things done. This is the wrestling match we all see. I'm not a wrestler. I, I, never, I don't know any moves. Like wrestling's all about moves, right? Like you can be really strong, but if a little guy knows how to bend your arm, you're in big trouble. So none of you guys, please don't. I don't want to wrestle you. I, I would, if any dude came up here and said, I want to wrestle, I'd be afraid you know like the special move that would you know, make me unable to be moved. So I wouldn't take a, a wrestling match like that. That's not God's wrestling match. You know who else likes to wrestle in my house? My four-year-old boy, all right? And, when, and usually it's to stall bedtime. I want to wrestle, Dad, which is fine. But when Joel asked to wrestle, there's no part of me that's nervous, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> now, yes, give him, give him 10 years, then I, you know, especially if he goes out for peewee wrestling, I might be in trouble. But right now, there's no, I'm not sweating it. Okay, let's go wrestle. And aside from a scratch here on my face, but anyway, you know, I'm, not, I'm not worried. This is, God is not this guy out there trying to 
duke it out with equal opposite forces, he's like wrestling a toddler. God is strong. And when Mary sees how strong this God is, that he exalts the humbled and he humbles the exalted, when she sees his strength, she sings, this God who is gracious and his favor towards me, though I don't deserve it, is also incredibly strong. And when it comes to this life, there is nothing that gets the upper hand on God. It's one of the clear themes. We don't have, gosh, Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2 is so good. Um, and then also what our fighter verse for today declares, that God declares the end from the beginning. Whatever comes your way, read, read Hannah's song. It's so good read alongside of Mary's. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But whatever comes your way, do not think it is for a second because God is powerless to do otherwise. As soon as we say this, difficulty comes in because of the rampant evil that there is in this world today. But listen, looking at the evil in this world and coming to the conclusion that it is because God is not strong enough to do otherwise is to contradict so much of our scripture that says differently. It's, it, it, it ruins more than it fixes. God is not weak. God is strong. He has purposes. They are way beyond ours, but they are not purposes that he hopes he can pull off. God's not hoping he can do this. They are purposes he will fulfill. Romans 8.28 also. We got to move. So that was the, the grace of God, the strength of God, and the promise keeping of God. We got two minutes for this. Mary finishes and she sings about Abraham. And the God, not only is he gracious, not only is he strong, he's a God who remembers to do what he promises. He's a God who makes good on his promises. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. We could go back to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, where we find this promise from God to Abraham that, I, that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's 4,000 so years before this going on with Mary, that God has remembered that there is a coming. And we could go back further, couldn't we? To Genesis three fifteen, the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, that in the curse of the serpent, he will have his head bruised while he bruises the heel of the seed of the woman, that there's a coming Savior. There's a coming seed who's going to reconcile all the nations, people from every tribe and tongue and language is going to be reconciled back to God through this seed. God has not forgot His promise. God has not forgot His covenant. God is a promise-keeping God. Galatians 3, we've got to just quickly go there. Galatians chapter 3, so this clearly comes out, says that just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What are they blessed with? Righteousness. They are given right standing with God. Abraham, by his faith, trusting in God's promises, God says that the scriptures tell us that God credited, to, credited it to him as righteousness, his faith in God. God doesn't forget his promises. 
God is a gracious God. God is a strong God, and he remembers to do what he's promised to do. He doesn't forget. He blesses all of the nations through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Christ comes to earth and earns the righteousness that we all, Abraham included, should have earned but didn't. He dies the death that we all deserve, condemned as condemned for sinners under the wrath of God. He resurrects from the grave in bold affirmation of his claims and for our justification. And he does all of this. Why? Because God had promised to bless the nations through Abraham. And now through Jesus Christ, men and women from every tribe, tongue, and language can look to Christ, turn from their sins, trust in him, be forgiven of their sins, and given Christ's righteousness. God promised to do it, and that's why he did it. God is gracious, God is strong, and God keeps his promises. And Mary sings because she sees and marvels that God is the covenant-keeping God. So, closing. God, give us eyes to see this God. What you need, what I need, what we all need for what life throws at us is not greater strength of will to do whatever. We need to see who this God is. A God of grace that moves for us, for our benefit, apart from our earning it. A God of strength who works all His holy will. And a God of promise-keeping that He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We should throw ourselves upon the grace, the strength, and the promise-keeping power of this God who is worthy of all of our praise, adoration, and worship. Let's pray. God, give us eyes to see. I feel like I have just, we have not even scratched the surface of your magnificence. But God, I pray that your whole, that Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to wonder and gaze and glorify and worship this God who is gracious, strong, and keeps his promises generation after generation. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.